Hi, Daniel. Hi, Kate. Welcome to Hot and Bothered, episode 8. We are a podcast about the politics of climate change for the 99%, hosted, as always, by Descent Magazine. That's right. Uh, This week on Hot and Bothered, we've got a full slate. We're going to the West Coast to talk to Don Phillips of Causa Justa, Just Cause, about the crucial links between race, housing, and climate politics. And there's been a lot of news since Election Day, so we'll talk about some recent and generally terrifying developments out of the still congealing Trump regime. And on the more hopeful end of things, uh, I'll give a report back from my recent trip to Standing Rock. And just before we get to some bad news, in case you forgot, I'm Daniel Aldana-Cohen. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Kate Aronoff, a writing fellow at In These Times magazine. Great. So speaking of these times, let's let's get into some some bad news there, Kate. Right. So uh, in the last couple of days, uh, we we have heard about Trump's pick to head the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, which is one of the only federal agencies with enforcement power to actually cut emissions. Uh, for now, that is that they have such power. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, as we talked about on our post-election show, uh, this new move by Trump isn't exactly surprising. Trump had picked the famed climate denier Myron Ebel of the Competitive Enterprise Institute to head up the part of the transition team which was working on the EPA. Yeah, and another member of the team uh, described herself as being a, quote, energy feminist because she's, quote, pro-choice in energy sources and headed up something like Moms for Fracking. You know, the the creativity of the right is always inspiring. Right. The right is is as creative with their regressive policies as they are in their their turns of phrase. So in that vein, Trump's pick is uh, someone named Scott Pruitt, who is Oklahoma's attorney general and has been a longtime enemy of the EPA and someone who refused to even acknowledge that climate change is a problem uh, during a recent testimony. That's right. Yeah. Going back over that that Senate testimony, I definitely got a sense that this person should be in charge of uh, regulating greenhouse gas emissions. Again, not even willing to acknowledge in public uh, that climate change is a problem, never mind that it is caused uh, by carbon emissions. Um, so I don't think we need to get uh, too further into the details of these of this pick. Uh, the stuff is kind of working its way through the headlines. But I do just want to remind folks that just two days before the Pruitt announcement, Al Gore met with Trump and told reporters that he was hopeful about the president-elect's uh, thinking and open-mindedness toward climate change. Right. Very shocking, given Al Gore's history of radical progressive militancy. Um, and, you know, we, we sort of predicted that, that some stalwart uh, green leaders might be willing to collaborate uh, with the with the Trump regime. So this isn't exactly surprising. Uh, and, and, you know, we're really seeing the, the collapse of, of Western liberalism here uh, on, on many different fronts. And, and, you know, one would think uh, that Justin Trudeau, uh, our, our Wook Bay up north uh, could be an exception. But of course, you know, Canada offers no solace in this moment uh, from, from Al Gore and the Leonardo DiCaprio's of the world um, as another, you know, uh, BuzzFeed darling uh, just to prove two pipelines up north. You know, Kate, t- to be honest, I, I would have taken that dig about Canada pretty personally uh, in the recent past. But at this point, I'm definitely ready to put a bumper sticker on my bicycle that reads, Canada is no solace. Um, so again, you know, if you just wanted one example of how Trump's so-called reasonableness is basically a paper tiger, uh, there you go, the Pruitt pick for EPA. Uh, and, you know, I just not to get into the hashtag I told you so, but 
Um, in our post-election episode, I think, Kate, we both agreed and both argued uh, in favor of the position that, that both environmental and more broadly progressive groups really need to fight Trump head on. And, you know, looking to cooperate is really kind of getting suckered at this point. Right. Because, you know, not only is cooperating, cooperating with this totally denialist, regressive, anti-regulatory agenda. It's also cooperating with uh, anti-immigrant policies, uh, broadly racist policies. Uh, and so it's really bad on a whole on a whole host of fronts. That's right. I mean, not to mention, uh, and we'll be getting into this later, of course, the, the choice of Ben Carson, uh, famed neurosurgeon to head uh, HUD, <laughs> the agency, uh, you know, housing and urban development, um, you know, that actually came out after the, the interview with Don Phillips. But but again, you know, pretty shocking and, and something something that, that we should not be collaborating with. Um, so, you know, I, I think we also talked about um, during that, that post-election emergency episode, just this broader idea that, you know, going forward for progressive forces in the next four years, the importance of really putting environmental climate politics, and ideally like a jobs left populist policy, a kind of Green New Deal policy, putting that at the core of the progressive backlash against Trump is really, really crucial to our to our future. So, you know, in that vein, thinking about moving forward, thinking about building broad coalitions, uh, let's talk about some some good news, something a little bit more hopeful. Um, So, Kate, you just got back from Standing Rock, where we saw, at least for now, a pretty significant victory in a struggle both against you know, up against the pipeline development that would both exacerbate climate change, but also threaten to really pollute uh, water sources so important uh, to Native Americans living in that area. So, Kate, you've you've just got back from Standing Rock. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you saw there when you arrived, what the scene was like uh, when you showed up? So I got in uh, about 3 a.m. on uh, Sunday um, and and just got back, as you mentioned. But I was actually in the car uh, when the decision from the Army Corps of Engineers came down that they wouldn't grant the easement uh, necessary to go under sort of a crucial stretch uh, to complete the remaining 10% of the pipeline that has yet to be built. Uh, And so, you know, what I was hearing from folks who were on the ground and and certainly what the the folks in the little um, caravan I I went down with were feeling was was just excitement and celebration. And and obviously, uh, this is a huge win for all of the kind of movement forces that have coalesced around around stopping this pipeline around the black snake uh, as many are calling it and so you know there, there was both this this sense that this is a victory this is a real win and also that that we know from the history of of these pipelines and and of the fossil fuel industry um that that this is uh this is subject to change and that you know the fight isn't isn't quite over yet, especially uh, with the, the Trump administration really looming. And, and that seemed to be something really on a lot of people's mind. It's, it's both uh, balancing, you know, wanting to really claim this, this real victory, which it is, and also uh, not, not letting up the fight. Now, Kate, we're going to get some excerpts from you in a minute from some of the conversations that you had down at Standing Rock. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to those. One thing I would love to just hear a little bit more about before we get there is you know, set the scene a bit physically. You know, I think we've all seen photos of this encampment. The weather is uh, really quite um, unwelcoming, let's say, for those of us who might live on the East Coast. Uh, you know, we've read about tents, teepees, and so on. You know, as someone who just spent a bit of time there, tell me what it was like, that what was the space like, the space that was being held, uh, again, by these water protectors and by a number of allies? 
Yeah, so um, the, the encampment uh, that I was at is the Ocheri Sakawin uh, encampment. Um, and uh, it's pretty sprawling. I mean, it's, it's really massive. There's a series of, uh, obviously, structures for people to, to, to sleep in, um, also kitchens and, and um, sacred fires, uh, all, all kind of around this area. Um, and uh, it, it's almost shocking coming from, you know, I grew up in New Jersey uh, and so I'm really, and I've never been to the Great Plains and so I'm really not used to uh, just how sort of brutal the weather can be. And this, this folk said was the worst, uh, the worst snow, the worst storm um, they've seen since they've, they've gotten there. Um, obviously not out of the ordinary for North Dakota, um, but, but really kind of uh, hard to deal with uh, for, for folks who are, who are living there. And a lot of people are, have been living there for the last several months. Um, and so, you know, I, I personally found it kind of uh difficult just to just to sort of get around uh it's it's you know snow covered very icy slick um and it's it's the wind there were 40 or 50 uh per mile winds uh i think on on one day i was there the the wind chill was sort of negative 25 and so um you know it, it was interesting because at the, on the one hand this is very much um in in the spirit of, of protecting the water and uh um a prayer resistance, prayerful resistance uh, camp. Uh, the other time, people are, are really, um, you know, doing a lot just to just to kind of survive in, in, in basic ways out there. Um, and you know, the the tent I was staying in uh, one night, it, it was so windy that the the, the stove that was heating it, uh, which made it you know possible to to inhabit, um, started blowing smoke back in. Uh, because the winds were so intense. And so from the sort of uh, fume that was coming out of it, um, the, the, the tent just became so smoky. And so, you know, it became impossible to, to kind of find a, a warm place. And so I have, you know, kind of amazing to, to see folks dealing with these conditions. And of course, um, you know, a lot of the, the sort of Native folks who um, have been living on that land for, for generations um, are used to this. And so that was one of the kind of interesting things is that, you know, this, this, uh, the most kind of resilient structures, uh, are, are from, um, you know, the, the Standing Rock Sioux, uh, and other folks who, who have really dealt with this and, and yeah, provided a sort of interesting, um, kind of background. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Kate, I think, you know, we've heard so much about the violence that, that water protectors have faced at the hands of the police and, but hearing more as well about the conditions of the camp, I think, we're really learning uh, what it means to put your body on the line in this kind of struggle right now. So uh, with that, let's uh, let's turn to some of your conversations, Kate, with organizers and activists out on the front lines at Standing Rock. As Daniel and I just talked about, I was in Standing Rock last week for a reporting trip. Just before I left, I got to speak with Judith LeBlanc, a member of the Caddo Nation in Oklahoma and the director of the Native Organizers Alliance. She's been traveling out to Standing Rock from her home in New York for the last several months. Aside from the attention being paid to a piece of fossil fuel infrastructure, one of the most historic things about what's happened in Standing Rock has been an unprecedented level of intertribal unity among Native Americans. The seven council fires of the Sioux Nation have been lit for the first time in 140 years, and it's the largest known gathering of indigenous tribes in recorded history. 
Judith and I spoke about the impact that's had on the resistance at Standing Rock and where that resistance fits within the broader scope of progressive organizing over the last several years. I think the lessons are that intertribal, intertribal unity is the only way forward, and, and that's what has been birthed at, at uh, Standing Rock, a whole new level of intertribal unity to fight on policies. And the policy, especially around protecting Mother Earth, the policies that, that it is possible to galvanize grassroots pressure on are transformative policy issues. Mm-hmm. You know, protecting water, it's, you know, everyone's thinking about it. It's something, you know, that if we can make sure that the people, that people have enough water, because mm-hmm. some, you know, some tribes don't have enough water. Um, and then if we can ensure that people who do have water, that it's clean and and then from from there, making the connection to uh, communities who are being flooded because of climate change. I mean, I mm-hmm. think the potential for some very broad-based coalition building is there on issues, and uh, and the core of folks in this country who've been doing work on issues, you know, will benefit a great deal from an invigorated and and more more vibrant uh, core of Indian organizers and organizations and tribal governments that are, that are ready to kind of link arms on some critical issues from voting rights to protection of water to health, you know, public health care. So I, I, think, I think it's going to be a rough road, but I, I think we're in a good position to fight. And, you know, the stronger the Indian country organizing is, the better it is for all the movements. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, it's just Standing Rock didn't come out of thin air. Right. You know, it came out of the XL pipeline fight and the stopping the drilling in the Arctic. But those fights didn't come out of thin air either. They came out of the, the level of militancy around the fight for 15, mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. Occupy Wall Street. And these social movements that erupt in response uh, have shaped have shaped the nature of alliance, but also have shaped the the the, the idea that movements can be built and they're not like the movements of the 60s or the 70s. They're uniquely different. Looking ahead to the next four years, how is kind of what's happening at Standing Rock setting up the, the sort of resistance to Trump's administration, you know, both in Native American communities, but also sort of more generally? We have to fight for people's humanity because there's going to be a lot of buyer's remorse, people who voted for Trump because he's not an ideologue mm-hmm. and many of the people who voted for them, him are not like ideologues. Um, and then there's going to be all those folks who didn't vote who are like, holy crap. You know, so in a lot of ways, the organizing strategy, Native-led organizing strategy of trying to, of trying to really, really help people understand not just their stake, but their humanity, that like their humanity is online, that mm-hmm. is going to affect how the Obama administration moves. I feel we're going to win this. Mm. I mean, today we, we uh, sent out Move On and Native Organizers Alliance, we sent to 5 million people, a, you know, a call to call President Obama to step in, step up, and, and uh, tell the court to deny the easement. But there's a lot of other pressure. You know, there's a lot of other back channel pressure. We have members of of the Senate who are really 
you know, trying to work different angles and, you know, I feel like that humanity factor is going to be the determining thing on this. As it turns out, it was. And days later, the Army denied Energy Transfer Partners the permit they'll need to complete the final leg of the pipeline. Of course, the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Black Snake as it's known, is far from dead, especially with very pro-pipeline President-elect Donald Trump preparing to take office in January. So water protectors are continuing the fight, targeting banks that are funding the project and also fighting other pipelines around the country. Jade Begay, who is Diné and Tisuke Pueblo, has been out at Standing Rock for the last month, working with the Indigenous Environmental Network and 350.org, each of whom have been featured on the podcast before. We spoke two days after the Army's decision came down about the pipeline's future and the future of the movement at Standing Rock. What this win, this step forward, this sign of progress shows us is that, you know, people power works mm-hmm. and um, that everything we've been doing has been effective and we need to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't, we can't move on or we can't, you know, let go of this momentum that we've we've created. We actually have to keep with it, mm-hmm. and we, now we need to target the banks because that's that's a good long term strategy. Yeah. Um, for the t- short term, um, targeting the banks was you know uh, kind of iffy because um, the banks have already invested in the pipeline, mm-hmm. so it's like oh well they already invested, so they're not going to pull it back necessarily. But in the long term, if mm-hmm. we continue divestment, um, if we continue, you know, you know what, not just showing up like we did at Standing Rock, but showing mm-hmm. up like we did for the Pinion Pipeline mm-hmm. or whatever it is, fracking in our various communities, you know, we can continue to show that, you mm-hmm. know, this is unacceptable, you know, these right. projects that put, um, that sacrifice, um, communities and marginalized communities like indigenous communities. Nothing is over at Standing Rock, of course, and the fight against that and other pipelines and for indigenous sovereignty and climate justice will continue for a long time to come. As we were wrapping up this show, we got word that Rex Tillerson, the CEO of ExxonMobil, who has only ever worked at ExxonMobil, is Trump's top pick to be Secretary of State. We'll be talking more about this on Hot and Bothered in the weeks to come, but for now, it seems like a clear sign that we all need to be taking as many lessons from the victories at Standing Rock as we can. So let's move now to the West Coast and to the question of how cities and race and housing and climate all intersect uh, over there, I'll be speaking with Don Phillips. Don is the program director at Causa Justa Just Cause, which is a multiracial grassroots organization that is building community leadership to achieve justice for low-income San Francisco and Oakland residents. So Don has a background uh, as well in environmental justice organizing, and in addition to his work at Causa Justa, Don serves as chair of the steering committee of the Right to the City Alliance. So, Don, uh, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you on. Um, I think we obviously need to talk about what's happening in California with respect to Trump's election, but let's get there in a minute and just start by 
learning a little bit more about your own work, how you came to uh, the organization, Causa Justa, Just Cause, where you work, and wh what it's been up to in the Bay Area, and then we'll get into the uh, to the election. So just to start, could you tell me a little bit, Don, about how you got to your current work focused around you know displacement and housing issues uh, and other issues like that in the Bay Area, and how that work has been informed by some of the stuff you did uh, before coming to Causa Justa, Just Cause? Well, thanks, Daniel. Uh, so, um, Causa Justa is actually a merger of three longtime Bay Area grassroots community organizations. Um, the three being the St. Peter's Housing Committee that had historically done work in the Mission District um, in San Francisco, uh, Power, People Organized to Win Employment Rights, who had uh, historically done a lot of work in the Bayview Hunters Point neighborhood um, in San Francisco and then, you know, later expanding also into the mission and then Just Cause Oakland, which has a long history of work in East and West Oakland. And the three organizations have, you know, over some almost 30 years uh, been engaged in a range of uh, kind of organizing and community fights around um, displacement, uh, community development issues, economic justice issues, immigrant rights issues, um, in terms of reflecting a focus on working with uh, and in working class uh, Black and Latino immigrant communities uh, in both San Francisco and Oakland. And the trajectory of the work um, is such that, you know, when you are doing um, the neighborhood and community organizing in historically disinvested communities, uh, it's a kind of a no-brainer um, that, you know, uh, in a kind of a hot market economy uh, like San Francisco and Oakland, uh, or a hot market region, if you would, um, that issues of displacement, um, development, and gentrification are actually very central um, to the work that we've done. And, you know, just a little bit more on the history is that, um, you know, from our, our St. Peter's history, we had a really long uh, trajectory of doing kind of know your rights work, rights-based service work with folks in terms of immigration and housing tenant issues. Um, it, the power um, work has a long history in kind of um, ensuring just and equitable development of the Bayview-Hunters Point neighborhood, including intervening in development projects, including like when Lennar, a major uh, development corporation, um, attempted to do a big development project in uh, Bayview, you know, power engaged for many, many years in terms of trying to ensure that that, that, de that development would um, hopefully benefit and minimally do no harm uh, to Bayview, longtime Bayview residents. And here in Oakland, um, you know, we've had a history of both uh, longtime tenant rights organizing. In fact, um, Just Cause Oakland was responsible for passing Just Cause eviction here in Oakland, um, you know, uh, over 15 years ago. And uh, as well as uh, kind of equitable development work um, intervening in development that is happening in both East and West Oakland. So that's the kind of like collective trajectory of kind of how the work got us here. 
Um, and in terms of this moment and leading up to this moment, you know, um, as people know across the country, um, the Bay Area is, you know, ground zero, if not one of the, the ground zeros, uh, or where uh, kind of this um, rising housing crisis, emerging housing crisis is really kind of like the, the um, issue of the moment, right, where you're seeing um, in many Bay Area cities, um, housing costs skyrocketing, um, you know, rents rising, um, where it is becoming, you know, practically impossible uh, for folks who are, you know, not making uh, 150 or 170,000 to even begin to afford what is basic decent housing um, uh, in the region. And, and, you know, we share this kind of um, experience with uh, many kind of major urban areas across the country. But frankly, you know, uh, from our understanding of the of the national moment, there is a growing number of suburban communities, um, you know, uh, uh, communities uh, and, and cities to some extent that are, are less urbanized um, are also being kind of swept up in this kind of real estate um, uh, frenzy that is kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of sweeping nationally. So, so uh, this is a moment um, in the Bay Area uh, and in our cities where we are seeing uh, for the first time in a long time housing uh, and displacement and gentrification be articulated as the number one issue um, and the number one concern for many residents across a broad income spectrum, across race to some extent, and across uh, geographies, um, urban and suburban, and extending e even into some of the uh, more rural areas. That's such a great summary of this of this problem, and it's um, I think just cause Casa Justa is one of these really intriguing organizations precisely because it has this rich history and is really from its very foundation about bringing different different working class communities uh, together. And as you pointed out, black and Latino communities, putting, bringing them together in this uh, organizing project. So what, I, what I'd want to ask you about now, I know you have a background in environmental uh, justice work, but also California, of course, a huge leader in low carbon policymaking. You see a huge amount of green city uh, kind of policies and thinking coming out of California. And of course, a lot of that is not focused, you know, first and foremost on housing justice, economic justice, racial justice. But, you know, there is also an explosion of, of environmental justice organizing. So I guess I'm wondering from the perspective, from your perspective, from the perspective of your organization, um, how do you think about the rise of climate change and environmental issues um, at the same time as this issue with housing? Are these issues that you see being really intimately connected? Does one often push up against the other? I'm sort of curious how these two kind of collide in the Bay Area, where, of course, both of these issues are now so so prevalent in, in the discussion. Yeah, um, I think that's a really great and big question. Uh, so, I mean, I think for us, the, the perspective on the question starts historically. Um, so the reality is that in many of the 
neighborhoods that we organize in, and these are historically disinvested uh, communities, right? So these are when you're when you're talking about the Bayview, when you're talking about um, uh, East Oakland, or you're talking about West Oakland. In fact, you are talking about neighborhoods that have suffered from uh, historic systemic disinvestment, which looks like, you know, the loss of uh, over, you know, over the last 50, 60 years, the loss of um, industry, of a jobs base in those communities, the kind of dis slow but very steady dismantling of the social safety net, the um, the budget decisions from the federal to the local level that have, uh, you know, pulled the rug out from under our public school systems, uh, uh, you know, many, many of the kind of basic critical community infrastructure uh, slowly decimated over the course of several decades um, because of disinvestment, both public and private, right? And if you look at those same um, communities, these are also, no accident, the very communities suffering um, severe environmental degradation, right? So if you look at the Bayview, for example, um, with its shipyards, um, if you look at West Oakland with its train, you know, uh, with, with, with its history around uh, kind of uh, being a, 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 a trucking hub and, uh, you know, with the diesel pollution, if you're looking at like um, these super fun sites, these same neighborhoods, uh, communities of color that have historically been disinvested are also the neighborhoods that have been, um, uh, to some extent, ravaged by decades of environmental um, degradation as a result of environmental racism, right? So, so the, the roots of what is the housing and gentrification crisis in our communities be comes uh, directly from their history of disinvestment, right? Which then makes them right um, for for gentrification because these form these deeply polluted, um, you know, um, communities have cheap housing. They have cheap real estate. Um, they're centrally located uh, within the kind of regional geography. But they really actually are, um, you know, they've re really to some extent been uh, been ravaged. And so the the roots of of gentrification and the housing crisis are completely intertwined with the roots of environmental racism and environmental degradation in our in our communities of color, right? And then if you fast forward to to right now, you know, um, it would be. Uh, short-sighted and it will be frankly ineffective of us strategically to not be kind of orienting the fights and the work that we are doing in this moment in order to address both. So for us, you know, um, it's very clear that the kind of current um, threats around development or the current threats around uh, kind of uh, uh, gentrification has as much to do with this kind of emerging approach of green, you know, so-called green development, um, transit-oriented development, um, basically approaches that have, to some extent, put a green coat um, over their, uh, you know, quote themselves in this kind of 
of of cloak of 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 environmentalism without, as you said, Daniel, um, a kind of any uh, real relationship to racial or economic or social justice, and they they are doing, in our opinion, as much harm in our communities as uh, just the kind of much more obvious, um, you know, more blatant forms of privately driven development, right? So we are seeing that the introduction of light rail into the Bayview, um, you know, uh, starting about eight, nine years ago, uh, had everything to do with laying the groundwork to be able to gentrify the Bayview, right? So what was supposed to be this green transit project um, really was not about serving the needs or interests of uh, working class black residents in the Bayview, but much more about making it possible, the neighborhood accessible to wealthier, often whiter um, new residents who then, you know, uh, uh, feel like the Bayview is more of a desirable place um, to live and be. Um, and then we're seeing that, you know, in, in Oakland as well with, um, you know, uh, bus rapid uh, projects with bike um, bike lanes being introduced around the city. And we have heard from the folks that we organize over and over again that, you know, the need for transit, the need for the development of kind of like environmentally sustainable projects is tremendous. People want that development. People need that development. People need the bike lanes. But those projects devoid of real community accountability, those projects devoid of real kind of community leadership and community participation, those projects devoid of a real sense of how they are actually addressing first and foremost the needs and interests of longtime and vulnerable residents in the neighborhood actually then have the effect of making things worse and driving bad development and driving inequity and driving displacement uh, rather than the opposite effect. So for us, the, um, the need to kind of look at, at, at development in terms of both having a view on really what is um, uh, uh, a true model and true vision of housing justice with climate resilience and climate justice is critical because otherwise, you know, um, there's a there's a, 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 a danger that really what happens is kind of a commodification of this kind of new green economy frame at the expense of working class communities of color. Now, Don, the situation you're describing has such such kind of uh, haunting parallels to what I'm seeing in you know in the East Coast, New York City, which I know better, where you have you know, you have formerly essentially like sacrifice zone communities now seeing themselves on the frontiers of kind of gentrification, often thought of as, as green gentrification. And, you know, the research, of course, showing also that if you are essentially just building low carbon urban amenities for young professionals, for wealthy professionals, you're not even achieving any real uh, environmental objectives. You're simply improving the quality of life for an already privileged segment of the population and, and at the expense of often of working class and, and people of color. Um, so you know, I think the kind of billion dollar question, and uh, you know, I don't know if anyone has the full answer to this, but you know, what, is, what are some of the 
strategies, whether it's organizing strategies or policy fights you've been involved with to try to, to try to get the kind of best of both worlds, to get that environmental justice, climate justice, climate resiliency um, implementation in terms of planning and, and policies, while at the same time preventing displacement and ensuring that people who've lived and, and, and grown up in these communities are able to benefit from the, from the changes to the built environment there. Yeah, so our strategy is essentially in three prongs and is built fundamentally on our belief that, you know, the only way to achieve climate justice and land and housing justice is through organizing uh, and supporting the leadership of folks who are most impacted by these issues and by these conditions to kind of self-determine um, and build the kind of communities uh, that, that they want and need to live in, right? Um, and so the three prongs of the strategy that our organizing is attempting to move is first, in terms of securing what we call community stabilization. And our community stabilization strategy is about acknowledging the fact that there is an immediate um, need first and foremost, to be able to stabilize and keep folks in place, that we have to begin to clearly articulate um, and win on the strategies and tactics that allow people to, um, to stay in their homes, to stay in their communities, to stay in the places where they have social networks, where they have political networks, where they have um, economic um, and, and, and cultural interests, um, but Stabilization looks like supporting folks around evictions, supporting folks um, around deportation defense, uh, helping folks know their rights, all the things that go into pressuring and uh, forcibly removing um, working class folks of color from their homes, from their neighborhoods, from their communities, right? So stabilization is a first key aspect of what is our three-pronged strategy for how to get to climate and housing justice. The second is that once some level of stabilization has been achieved, that we have to commit to the things that will deeply and truly and meaningfully engage these same folks in being able to lead and, uh, and develop their own community plans and community development. Um, so that um, the work of supporting neighbors and residents in coming together in developing collective vision for what should their communities look like, what are for identifying community priorities, for figuring out and directing how resources uh, should go towards what projects, towards meeting what needs, um, to naming um, uh, services, uh, the types of institutions, the types of, of or organizations and activities that are necessary in the community to promote and build towards kind of long-term um, uh, environmental and housing justice, right? So the second aspect of our strategy is really around um, supporting and nurturing uh, community-driven planning, uh, community-driven development. And sorry, Don, not to interrupt, but just to, to make sure I, I understand, the, this is really a strategy about building local power with by organizing people together, right? This is not a question that you're talking about 
of a sort of a, a policy-oriented or a petition-based, signature-based strategy? It sounds to me like you're really talking about deep organizing. You, you're right. And it's, it's all, actually, it's all of that, right? It's supporting communities in coming together collectively, determining the vision for, for what development in their neighborhoods could and should look like. Uh, it's about supporting people in, in large case, multi-year efforts to actually uh, conceive of, in, you know, and, and begin to implement some of that vision, whether that vision looks like the development of housing, whether that vision looks like some kind of way in which people are uh, improving green space in their communities, but, but how do they be supported to actually begin to like move, move on and implement those, um, those, those aspects of the vision. And then the things that you name are potentially the multitude of tactics that, that folks have to do. And in the work that we've done, it has taken all those forms, right? In some cases, folks have collected petitions from their neighbors and had their neighbors sign petitions to support or to name um, certain needs and certain issues. We have done policy fights in terms of actually um, getting uh, uh, policymakers to support the notion and strengthen the process of community-driven development in some of the cities. Um, so, so, so yes, it's, it's what you said, and as well as the organizing and the kind of bringing people together. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I think I'm seeing yeah, there's kind of a distinction between that strategy of deep power building and then, and then these other tools, which are often, I think, confused for strategy, are, are these different tactics which you use depending on the particular uh, moment. Yeah, and, and for us, and, and you're absolutely right, and that's why I started by saying, like, for us, all these three strategies are predicated and, and built on the foundation of strong organizing. Right. Because you can't do any of these for us. Right. You both cannot do and it's not effective to do any of these strategies outside of the context of uh, organizing collective action and building people's power. Um, so so then the, the third um, and final prong of the strategy is mm-hmm. really around thinking about how to expand community control and community collective community ownership of key organizational resources and infrastructure, um, be that, be that housing, be that land, um, be that other kinds of infrastructure institutions and, um, resources that folks in the community determine, um, to be important, right? So looking at everything from, um, expanding, um, you know, community land trusts, um, trying to think through how to expand models of collective uh, worker ownership of, of um, economic um, enterprises or collective ownership of housing. But that's those really three approaches together are for us the kind of major pathways for how we think and look at um, both achieving and moving this kind of vision of environmental and um, uh, broader community uh, justice and development that we're looking for. Fantastic. And so, you know, among these strategies and tactics, so, you, you know, you, your third, um, the sort of third strategy around uh, collective ownership, community ownership, uh, very powerful. Um, in New York, there's also a lot of, of talk, I think, just about bringing, bringing back more conversation about, you know, rent regulations, rent controls. Um, also, of course, things like preventing landlord harassment, providing legal resources so that uh, units which are, you know, theoretically below market uh, rent, you know, remain that way and landlords aren't able to to clear people out. Um, is this also kind of part of the toolkit uh, that you guys are using? 
Absolutely. I mean, the tenant rights and tenant protection, landlord accountability issues are a central aspect of the community stabilization um, strategy for us. It has, you know, everything to do with protecting in many cities and in many communities, uh, tenants in, in private housing or privately owned housing um, often form the majority of the kind of housing stock and those tenants form the majority often of uh, the city's population in many places. You know, uh, uh, our National Alliance uh, Right to the City released a report called Rise of the Renter Nation, which looks at the fact that in, you know, I think 20 over almost 30 major metropolitan areas around the country, um, renters in, in uh, privately owned um, housing are the majority, right, of the population in many in many uh, communities and many cities. So, so this is a population that if you can put in place stronger, more effective protections and um, and uh, and accountability around, you essentially can protect and stabilize uh, what is a very large portion of the kind of community and rent control eviction protections, um, policies and initiatives that improve the quality of housing, uh, not just the affordability of it, but actually ensure that this housing is healthy, that it's it's um, sustainable, that it's actually safe places for families and people to be living in. Um, all these things are very, very critical in terms of actually stabilizing and providing um, long-term housing access for a vast majority of people. Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned, you know, this issue of housing quality. Uh, I, I feel that, the, you know, everybody knows, essentially, quote-unquote, everybody knows that to decarbonize the United States, you know, to get to carbon zero, you, of course, need to really improve um, the functioning of buildings. And yet so often what we're hearing about are kind of large, you know, office towers, apartment towers, often luxury buildings, lead buildings, uh, and so much less about improving the quality of the you know, millions and millions and millions of homes that people live in, which are often uh, really do need a ton of work. Um, so I, I just want to ask you, you know, about the election now. Um, you know, this this has been in terms of at the presidential level, obviously a brutal election. Uh, and there's a lot of talk in the at least in the communities I'm connected to about resistance and and defending uh, against the terrible things that are coming down from the Trump administration uh, or the future Trump administration. But people have also been pointing a lot to California as an example of where there's, you know, there's the, the kind of progressive forces are playing offense, radical forces even are playing offense as well and having some success. So I'm curious to hear, are there, you know, among the, the gazillions of ballot initiatives that were up uh, in California and locally within California, are there are there ballot measures where there were successes that you would like to to lift up that we should be paying attention to from, from outside of the Bay Area? Um, and then I would also love to just hear what, people are talking about in terms of, you know, resisting, resisting Trump? I think that your framing of the elections is, uh, is right on. I think that in California, as probably in other places, the local elections probably were more encouraging than what was kind of happening at the national level. Um, what was exciting here in the Bay Area was that um, we've essentially, we essentially had a historic, um, election, uh, in that after 
30, almost 30, 30 over years, um, this November uh, in six cities in the Bay Area, there were eviction protection and rent control measures um, being on being run on the ballot in six six different cities and this is following um, successful legislative fights that had happened prior earlier this year um, so that in San Jose and in Santa Rosa for example um, not through the ballot but through legislation folks were successfully able to organize around rent control in cities that have historically uh, been entirely antagonistic to the idea and the notion of rent control. Um, so, you know, while we didn't win in all uh, six cities, we won in three, and these were huge victories. Um, one, because uh, just the demonstration of the community outcry and the deep, loud community support for these measures um, and the, the, the demand to address really what is a growing crisis in the region was something that was heard loud and clear. And the vast majority um, of folks that actually heard about these um, efforts were excited, inspired, and you know, for us, this was a, an opening, um, an opening whereby I think we're looking forward to there being, you know, six, 12, many, many more fights, not just in the Bay Area, but California more broadly, um, where we are going to start, I think, um, being able to move, uh, both legislatively, um, and at the ballot, and frankly, just in terms of on-the-ground organizing um, around issues that, you know, have had no traction, no political um, viability for 30 over years. So I think the, the confluence of both what is long-term, deep, concerted organizing alongside the particularities of the um, economic moment is really for us here in the Bay and California coming together in such a way that we are beginning to be able to move things that we frankly even two years ago could not have been could not have imagined uh, being able to move and I'm sorry, I'm sorry Don which, it's which not an the... accident I'm sorry I just wanted to ask I was just gonna ask which of the cities were again where the where you had the success so we won in Mountain View, Richmond, and Oakland. Great. And there were additional fights in Burlingame, San Mateo, and Alameda. Um, so, so, and then there were also um, successful uh, 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 measures in Berkeley um, that were that were around eviction protection. And then in multiple cities around the region, we also saw the uh, victory of um, supportive, uh, tenant supportive council members, uh, uh, city and county board members being elected to different uh, positions in, in multiple cities as well. So all in all, this kind of new moment coming about as a result of this combination of the, the, the economic reality of the housing crisis, but really the power and the kind of um, 
effectiveness of what is like multi-year um, deep organizing. And I think that um, when you, you know, when you uh, look at the view, even step back from that, you know, uh, you know, and think about the, this moment along with the effectiveness of like minimum wage fights that are being run in different um, cities. If you look at the fact that um, there were affordable housing bond measures that were being passed in multiple cities in the region, um, that uh, there were worker protection um, uh, initiatives that were being passed, then you really start to get a sense that this combination of organizing with movement building, with um, kind of taking uh, uh, using of the electoral uh, moments and electoral opportunities to kind of enact progressive uh, progressive policies and progressive legislation, the 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 uh, the view becomes even more robust and even more comprehensive in terms of how organizing combined with civic engagement and voter engagement um, and movement building is really, I think, the ingredients that are producing this opening um, through kind of progressive legislation. Yeah, really inspiring stuff. And, and seeing, you know, is, is it possible then, you know, thinking about Trump that these, you know, that in a way, the kinds of organizing you've been talking about that you've been doing, this deep, long-term strategic power, power organizing, so organizing around building power at the at the base, you know, is this the foundation for for taking on Trump? Is what you're talking about essentially more of the same? Um, is there something else going on that we should hear about in terms of you know what people are thinking about uh, in this moment? Again, fighting back against what we expect to see from the Trump uh, administration. I mean, I think for us, our sense is that this is a new political moment. I think what has happened in the national elections has essentially created a kind of a new historical period for us as a as a nation um, and I think that there is a tremendous need for everyone to really think long and hard about what is going to be the kind of strategic needs for organizing for uh, community defense for being able to continue continue to reach for and build towards a vision um, that is uh, grounded deeply in racial, economic, gender justice. Um, you know, uh, a progressive uh, people-serving vision, right? For for us as a as a country. And I think from our perspective and the perspective of our work, I think that um, we feel uh, affirm that some of the approaches and uh, the approaches that we've used historically are needed now more than ever. And I think that our sense is that there are potentially new things and new ways that we have to do uh, and develop as well to be able to respond effectively to the moment. So specifically, I think for us, our sense is that um, there is there continues to be a tremendous need for a progressive, um, racially just vision um, of 
kind of community and, uh, and national level articulation of what is the vision, what is the version of this country um, and our neighborhoods that we want to be living in, right? So uh, in whose interest are we developing this, right? So what is the vision of a truly sustainable, healthy, um, safe communities look like um, at the level of our blocks within our city, but then all the way up to the national level? Um, for us, we also feel like the work that we have invested in for many decades around talking about racial justice, talking about the need to ensure that, um, you know, we are addressing uh, systemic racism and white supremacy within the context of uh, a broad social justice agenda is critical and re will remain really critical in the next period. For us, our thinking that the communities that have historically been most disenfranchised by globalization, by neoliberalism, by neoliberal development have to be at the forefront of articulating the kinds of changes, the kinds of um, uh, policy changes, the kinds of social changes, the kinds of economic changes that are going to be necessary in the next period that we have to build unity and solidarity between these different communities that have all been affected, but they have been specifically differently impacted. And how do we work between and amongst those differences um, to build unity and to actually articulate then really what it is, a collective need and a collective vision for something different. And then um, for us, like we feel reinforce and reaffirm that, you know, collective organizing, collective action, collective visioning, um, these are things that are going to be needed more than ever, right? So I think those are some of the things that in our minds are kind of carryovers from the work that we have been doing and that in our minds continues to be deeply needed. And then I think in terms of the specifics around then, what are the things that we need to do different? Um, you know, I think that there is still so much more that we need and can do uh, to think about how is it that we're really building the types of broader movement infrastructure, the types of broader movement formations that allow and position us to be more effective in the next period. You know, I think there's many, many questions about like what um, what is necessary in terms of building um, electoral power and electoral capacity to move um, to move people at the national level. You know, I think it's a real question whether the current uh, two-party system uh, is is uh, is um, effective in terms of being able to do something different, right? So potentially um, more uh, more thinking, more development of alternatives to that two-party system are, are potentially a, a big part of what's going to be needed in the, in the next moment. Um, uh, and then the, the last thing I'll mention is that I think another example um, for uh, many of our organizations, I think there's going to need to be a real kind of soul-searching um, in terms of how we think 
and act in this next moment around some of the 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 ways we historically approach the work you know whether we are um uh uh you know need to shift around kind of like over reliance of certain types of funding whether we need to think differently um about the ways in which uh some of the organizing work has been professionalized there are all these i think different questions that the moment um raises that uh we are going to have to rise um to meet and really just be very sharp about both what are the things that we want to carry over from the previous period but what are the things that we are going to quite um necessarily have to be doing different in this new moment well don i think this is a, a good note to end on on a ton of really really helpful and powerful reflections on on moving forward. Uh, So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Daniel. That was fascinating. It's, uh, It's definitely daunting, but also maybe exciting to see how deeply entwined the issue of climate justice really is uh, out in the Bay Area with racial politics and gentrification and displacement. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, You know, I think with the talk out there about climate refugees, it's kind of easy to think that climate change and racial violence are really stories about Africa, but the Middle East, you know, Syria in particular, and so on, kind of foreign relations type scenarios. But the fact is, racial violence and climate change, uh, as we heard in, you know, both of our segments today, are intensely connected within countries as well, uh, and of course within the U.S. in particular. Which is awful. Which is awful. Um, on the flip side, as we often have to have to say in, in the discussion of climate change, you know, I think the climate movement does, uh, once, once it recognizes that, really just have so much room to grow, uh, you know, insofar as it can, you know, really figure out how to connect in a meaningful way to racial justice struggles, indigenous justice struggles, housing fights, you know, often those just local struggles where the the people fighting on the ground don't necessarily think first about climate change, but you know, building alliances uh, with these groups in an intelligent and open-hearted way does really feel like the way forward. Yeah, my my thoughts exactly, and uh, definitely resonates with with what I heard from folks on the ground at Standing Rock. So I think we're just about out of time. To our listeners, you can tweet us your rage, your hopes, uh, feelings about Ivanka Trump as climate hero, the Westworld season finale, and everything in between to hashtag hot bothered climate. You know, Kate, I, I can't help but notice just uh, following you on Twitter, the, the stuff on Westworld just keeps coming. And you know, are you basically pitching this to us as the next uh, Game of Thrones? I may be trying to plant a, a subtle seed uh, for my dreams of a, a separate offshoot podcast about climate dystopias and, and future, uh, future worlds. Well, until you get that one going, uh, stay hot. And stay bothered. <laughs>